Next up, Don, a special oh, appearance by KMD's Sev oh, Love X. A gas face, can either be a smile or a smirk when a pair's a monkey wrist to work one's clockwork. Turkey is burnt to the rim of my cup. Don't tempt me, you're empty. So fill her up. The year is 1989. The song The Gas Face by Queen's hip hop trio Third Bass. It's a silly song about that face you make when someone says something that's mildly offensive or ignorant. You know, like, that's the gas face. And the guy who came up with the idea for this song, the same guy that we just heard rapping, wasn't even a member of Third Base. He was a friend of the group, an 18-year-old named Daniel Dumoulet, who called himself Zev Love X. He chose that name, Zev Love X, because for one, he loved how the letters Z and V looked in graffiti, but also Zev Love X spells X evolves backwards, implying some kind of mysterious algebraic equation. And also, since Daniel Dumoulet was a member of the Ansar Allah black Muslim community, the X, we can assume, also represented the renunciation of his slave name, as it did for Malcolm X. This is all to say that this young man had a real knack for finding hidden meanings and interpretations within any given word or phrase. And this gift would eventually make him one of hip-hop's most respected lyricists. Now often referred to as your favorite rapper's favorite rapper, Daniel Dumoulet would go on to have a huge influence on big-name MCs like Tyler the Creator, Joey Badass, Danny Brown, Logic, and even the poster child of pop rap himself, Drake. Raised mostly in Long Island in the 80s, Dumoulet was steeped in New York City's hip-hop culture at a young age. He was a graffiti artist, a breakdancer, and of course an incredibly talented MC. But along the way, things did not go exactly as planned. Not for Daniel Dumoulet, and not for hip-hop music either. Welcome to Anatomy of a Verse, the podcast that examines rap music and hip-hop culture one verse at a time. I'm Max Maples, and today is episode one in a two-parter about the masked supervillain, a.k.a. Victor Vaughn, a.k.a. King Ghidorah, a.k.a. the Metal Fist Terrorist, a.k.a. the one and only MF Doom. Here's a little story that must be told. It's a music that is all beat and talk. It's rap music. We don't do that in my music, man. I'm tired of you saying that. Yeah, too. how about the gang rape on you? But when it comes to the children, Wu-Tang is for the children. You had a, a rap singer here last night named Sister Soldier. And they, they, they've given them permission to go down and shoot us. Gangster rap and misogynist lyrics will not be tolerated any longer. It's not actually a form of music. It's a, it's a form of rhythmic speed. And murder the rock. I enter the stone and a hospitalize a brick. I'm so bad I make medicine sick. So it wasn't long before Zevlov X, along with his younger brother, DJ Subrock, and their friend Onyx, signed a record deal. As a trio, they called themselves 
KMD. And again, what the acronym stood for was less important than the fact that it just looked really cool as a graffiti tag. The guy who signed them was an A&R man at Electra Entertainment named Dante Ross. And immediately, he noticed something particularly special about the two Dumoulin brothers. So, so Doom and, and Sub were like one person. I'd never seen anyone. Any, they were so smart, right. but so innocent, but so they wise. They were innocent when they were running with, uh, with third base, right? But wise at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and cynical. They had their own, their own swag, their whole own thing. And they were devout Muslims. They would stop the session and, and pray five times a day at that point. Um, they were amazing, man. They were wonderful kids. And, and they were kids. You know, Doom was a young man. And, and Subrock was a kid, damn near. And it was a pleasure, man. I mean, Doom is, I mean, he, what 18-year-old kid from Lake, you know, from Long Island, from Long Beach, is reading Charles Bukowski. Mm. Like, you know, he was like, he wanted to know, to right, learn. Right, right, he, right. Was, he was that guy. He was intellectually gifted, um, as was Subrock, technically and intellectually gifted, extremely advanced. So I don't know what was going on in their house, what their DNA is, but those kids were light years ahead of most of, most of their peers. Right. And in May of 1991, about two years after signing their deal, KMD released their debut album, The Fun and Playful Mr. Hood. No, I cannot do that. Oh. This is not a Porsche shop. This is Pickles Jewelry. Ah, Mr. Hood, my favorite customer. What can I do for you today? I would like to see some gold rings. Ah, uh, yes, we have these. Probably the most instantly memorable thing about this album is the clever skits in which a character named Mr. Hood is constructed using a bunch of chopped up samples from an old Spanish language instructional record. Many thanks for your help. My name is Mr. Hood. What is your name? Yeah, I'm someone X from KMD. I am pleased to meet you. Oh yeah, likewise. Uh, yeah, how you doing anyway? Perfectly well, thank you. Uh, and you? And it's telling that the first track of this album takes place in a jewelry store. Because later on, we're going to see Dumoulin's suspicion of expensive jewelry become a huge part of his identity as a musician. But that's for part two. This album, Mr. Hood, can be seen as one giant commentary on racial identity in urban America. But it's done in a way that is intentionally funny and lighthearted. What kind of a car do you have? I'd rather be pimp-strutting on hot black tar. The motor is brand new. Yeah, but that's late too, ain't it? Your mother likes to visit the old churches. Yo, I know he ain't just this my mother. I know he ain't just this my mother. Yo, yo, my man. He gets no skins. You only had one girl. What's her name? What's her name? Monique Yeah, Monique Bradley. It doesn't matter. got burned from her. It does matter. But Mr. Hood is not exactly all fun and games, either. The KMD logo, which was designed by Dumoulin himself, is what is often referred to as a little black Sambo cartoon, or a racist depiction of a boy with dark, jet-black skin and extra-huge lips. In the top right corner of the Mr. Hood album artwork, you can see this little Sambo face with a red circle and slash through it symbolizing KMD's condemnation of black stereotypes in America. This is explained humorously in the song Who Me, which features, of all things, a Sesame Street sample.
damn man. You don't wanna call me a monkey, a cool, a jigaboo, a boogeyman, yo, Bert. Yo, Bert. What is it? Yo, Jay, they wanna call me all these names. I know what we can do. What can we do? We'll ask someone out there to find little Sambo. What you be meaning, Jay? All kids, pick up a crayon. No, them. Oh, yes, kid, pick up a crayon. Look for little Sambo. Let's talk a little bit about Zev Love X's rapping style by taking a quick listen to a clip from the lead single from this album, the song Peach Fuzz. And I want to see if you can figure out on the first listen what it is that he's talking about here. And I'll give you a hint. It has to do with two things, youth and money. If we take these lyrics literally, it sounds like Zev Love X is trying to sell bundles of his teenage facial hair to a young woman. But as we examine the lyrics, we realize that This is actually a metaphor for a kid who's just trying to find and understand success as he gets older. Just in the first eight bars, his careful vocabulary choice and double entendres are way ahead of their time. Check out the investment banking terminology that he uses in lines like, if you loan me your ear, I'll return it with interest. And then, listen up closely with thoughts to recoup me because I hope to gross like 10 cents per groupie. And all of this is set over a simple major triad marimba melody that sounds like it could have come from a kid's TV show or a level one music class. Notice the fact that he never straight up tells us what the verse is about. He never says, back in the day when I had peach fuzz on my chin, I was trying to learn how to get money and impress women, yada, yada, yada. Right, this is important because what he's doing is a kind of abstract storytelling, which will become the framework for his most important and influential music, which is still over a decade away at this point in our story. Although it may have seemed like Zev Love X was the one running the show in KMD, his younger brother Subrock was becoming an equally huge part of their sound. He was like the yin to Doom's yang. Here's Dante Ross again. They were hyper-intelligent, almost otherworldly intelligent, and they had this, this symbiotic relationship that's somewhat indescribable. You kind of had to see it, but more than brothers, it was like they were twins. They finished each other's sentences and worked seamlessly and, and together. And I never saw them argue about music. They argued about other stuff, but when it came to the creative process, they never argued about anything. And so Doom was, you know, Zev was the leader, I guess. He's the older brother, the older sibling. But he started a lot of stuff and handed it to Sub. 
and would be like, finish that. So Sub was very, very involved in all of the production. Like, and he was, I want to say, a bit more technical than, than Doom on some levels. Shortly after beginning work on their second album, Onyx, the other member of KMD, quit, and Subrock gladly stepped up to fill his place as the other MC. Up until that point, he had only been involved in the production side of things. And now, the two Dumoulet brothers, who were already inseparable best friends and natural collaborators, wasted no time getting to work on this new album, which would turn out to be much darker and less innocent than Mr. Hood. But I'll get to that a little later, because just before the album was finished, on April 23rd, 1993, Subrock was killed in a freak accident. While trying to cross the Long Island Expressway on foot, he was struck by a car and died a few hours later at the hospital. Now, it's rare to be able to point to one little moment in history and say, that's the moment that changed everything. Things would totally be different if that one thing hadn't happened. But in the story of MF Doom, this is that moment. It's the moment when Zev Love X, the MC, effectively dies and begins morphing into something very different. At his brother's funeral, he took a boombox containing the album that they had been working on together, and he placed it right next to the casket and played it from start to finish. And the name of that album is Black Bastards. Now where's my goddamn bullet? You got my name on it, you black bastard! Hey, this doesn't make sense. It does. All right, come on, Black. What do you hide? This. The dick. Oh, oh, it's This is a much darker and angrier record than Mr. Hood, although it does contain a lot of the same elements, like chopped up spoken word samples and Zevlovex's abstract storytelling that we talked about earlier. And there's even a few cartoon references here and there. But notably, on Black Bastards, the subject of race and racism would take up a lot more of the spotlight. And this would be the last time that Daniel Dumoulet rapped like this, aggressively and on top of the beat with a young, eager-sounding voice. Because unfortunately, things were about to get even worse for him. Here he is from a 2011 interview, talking about his decision to finish Black Bastards by himself after his brother's death. We almost finished, we was just about done with the record, you know, and then um, then the accident happened, you know what I'm saying, where, where Sub lost his, his life and whatnot, God bless. And then I finished the record, you know, I still went ahead and finished the record despite, you know, because only it was a little bit more to do. So, you know, just for the... I mean, I'm going to finish it. One of us is going to finish it anyway. If it happened to me, he would have finished it. You know what I'm saying? You know, but then that's when they decided to uh, um, sever the agreement with us. 
Remember that little black Sambo cartoon logo that I mentioned earlier? Well, the Black Bastards album cover shows this little black Sambo character again, but this time not just the face, but now the full body being hanged from a hangman's noose. And underneath it, the title of the album is spelled out with a few letters missing, like it's a game of hangman. And even before the album was released, this imagery was not sitting well with some people in very high places. Specifically, two black senior writers at Billboard magazine. I'll let Dante Ross take it from here. Havelock Nelson, Terry Rossi, um, they condemned the artwork and the band and the label putting it out without ever giving an audience to Doom to defend his rhetoric. And I think I think that was uh So what did they see when they saw they that? They said it cover? was racist that no a major label can't put out a record with Sambo on the cover that's called Black Bastards. Keep in mind, while this was nineteen ninety-four, and there was nothing unusual then about a rap album with controversial cover art, the timing was particularly bad for KMD in this instance, because Electra's parent company, Time Warner Music, was still recovering from a much, much bigger controversy surrounding the song. But there was another unspoken reason why Time Warner and Elektra were worried about taking a risk with this album specifically. As Doom would point out much later in a 2011 interview, yeah, but then you know what? At the same time, we had records out on the same label, like like Cop Killer, Ice T shit, and like there was a lot of controversial records at that time. I think it was more like, okay, is this is this product marketable? Can we sell this? You know what I mean? Because if they could, if they found a way to sell it, they would it wouldn't have been a problem. There was even some rock groups on there. I forget the name of the rock group. They had something the same year. They had a cover with like. A cross with uh, like a Jesus Christ with a goat head, and was real bugged out. That maybe might some people might see as offensive, or and had blood, all kind of looking crazy. But but you know they selling millions of records at the time, so it wasn't as offensive as you know. There's always a front story, but there's also a backstory, the real story. You know what I mean? So they circulated. My boss called my office, and he said. There's a lot of uh, contentious feelings about this artwork, and and we're gonna put this before the, re- the review board at, uh, you know, at Warners. WMG, and we're gonna see, <laughs> you know, what people said. And he said that Vincent Davis, who had Keith Sweat, found this offensive, and Sylvia Rome finds this offensive, and it's been deemed offensive by several black so people. All the bourgeois were all black. Right. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. We said it for you, brother. Thank you. All Thank the you. bourgeois are blacks. Certain things I can't say. The- And at this point, the album is supposed to be released in less than a month. It's fully mixed, mastered, turned in. They had even shot a music video for the lead single. Then, Doom gets called into a meeting at Elektra headquarters, expecting an opportunity to plead his case to the corporate bigwigs, only to find out that there was no meeting. They had already abandoned the record, and KMD was officially dropped from the label. As Dante Ross would tell it, Electra CEO Bob Krasnow took Doom aside and told him, We're not going to have the meeting. I'm not going to put the record out. And he said, But I am going to give you back your masters. And I know you've been through a lot of stuff with your brother. And I'm going to also give you basically a like get out of jail free check. So he gave him, a, I think it was $20,000 check. 
And we went to my office and I had all this wine. Someone sent me a case of wine and we drank a couple of bottles and, and Doom said, you know, I should get dropped more often. I haven't got a $20,000 check in my entire life. <laughs> and, and, and just like that, the MC known as Zevlov X was gone forever. Though. The thing that really was hard for me, though, was, you know, when, when Sub got killed, you know what I'm saying? Because Doom really, like, took that super-duper hard. I was with him one night, and he was just bugging out, you know what I'm saying? Like, we was trying to get a cab, and I think the cab was, like, not trying to pick us up. So, like, Doom just started beating on the on the window, you know, of the cab, like, trying to break the window damn near. And I'm like, chill, chill, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, but he was just amped off the whole situation, was still fresh. He was going through it, you know what I'm saying? And then he just, like, vanished and, like, I ain't even hear from him or nothing for quite a while. And then somehow we had got back in contact and he was in Atlanta, I think, you know what I'm saying? And we was we was talking to stuff a little bit, you know what I'm saying, just chopping. He told me the whole thing about MF Doom, his whole plan, how he's going to do it, everything. Like, everything, exactly how he came out, it all was planned, you know what I'm saying? We don't know a whole lot about what Doom was up to after getting dropped from Elektra. We know that he spent some of this time in Atlanta. We know that he was broke and, in his words, damn near homeless, sleeping on benches. We know that he smoked a lot of weed. It would be another three years before he re-entered the public eye. And by then, to put it mildly, hip-hop had changed. Bad boy. 1997, the dawn of the shiny suit era exemplified by Sean Puff Daddy Combs and his massively successful record label, Bad Boy Entertainment. These chart-topping New York City rappers were making one thing very clear. For them, it was all about the money. Quick that, uh-huh. you a big cat, where your chicks at, where your whips at, wherever you get stacks, I'ma fix that, everything that's big dreams, I did that. But there were a growing number of hip-hop heads, especially in New York, who disagreed with that. To them, hip-hop was supposed to value community over profit. Wait, wait, wait. Don't say a word before the record button is engaged, because I don't want to miss a word of what my man MF Doom has to say. And homeboys and homegirls. Do not try this at home without, without proper, proper hip-hop, hip-hop supervision. Fresh MF The Stretch and Bobito show on WKCR 89.9 was a no-budget college radio show that aired in the middle of the night every Thursday from Columbia University. The hosts, DJ Stretch Armstrong and Bobito Garcia, are now widely considered the most respected tastemakers in hip-hop history, as their show became a launch pad for damn near every legendary 90s rapper that you've ever heard of. But they never took themselves all that seriously. They dedicated plenty of airtime to jokes, silly phone calls, goofing off, and most importantly, freestyles from up-and-coming MCs. And that's how Daniel Dumoulin, in April of 1997, wound up making his first public appearance in three years, now under the name 
MF Doom. I only play the games that I win at and stay the same with more rhymes than it's waste skin cats. As a matter of fact, let me rephrase. With more rhymes and ways to fill a felines in these days. Watch the path of the black one. He the villain, he rep club with Duff in the drunk But away from the show, both Stretch and Bobito were very close with Doom. And individually, they would each play a key role in his comeback. Just a couple years earlier, Bobito had started his own record label, Fondulum Records, originally just meant to be kind of a joke. It wasn't even a record label in the traditional sense. Artists didn't sign contracts with Fondulum. They just brought their finished material to Bobito, who took care of promotion, pressing, distribution, and then they split the profits 50-50. And MF Doom, who would never work with another major record label again in his lifetime, saw Fondulum as the perfect opportunity. Here's Bobito. The indie scene was its own sort of self-supported thing. And, and so Fondulum come out in 95, and then all of a sudden, we weren't trying to be showbiz and AG, putting out a 12-inch and getting picked up by Payday. And it wasn't like we were Wu-Tang trying to get picked up by Loud Records RCA. You could name a lot of examples of 12 inches coming out and getting picked up by majors. And the shift was in 95 was we're going to be indie and we have no interest in getting picked up by a major. Like this, this is straight indie. Like this is all we are. And Doom fit into that ethos so well because he was like, yo, like I already went through the major label thing. Like I don't want to go through that again. I only play the games that I win at and stay the same with more rhymes than it's ways to skate cats. As a matter of fact, let me rephrase. With more rhymes and ways to fill a few lines these days. So Fondalum released three MF Doom 12-inch singles, along with some unreleased songs from Black Bastards. If you remember, Doom owned the masters to that record so he could do whatever he wanted with those songs. But when it came to making a full-length album, that's where Bobito's partner, DJ Stretch Armstrong, came in. Stretch let Doom stay at his apartment rent-free and let him use all of his records and equipment to make whatever music he wanted. I just remember coming home at, you know, five in the morning and Doom was behind that MPC banging out beats or, or just respectfully going through stacks of my records or recording vocals. It was incredible. It was like a three-week period, and I never gave him a bed. He never even lay down on the couch. I don't know what his finances were like. I know he didn't have a job at the time, and I know how the music business works. He wasn't making any kind of money to be comfortable at that point. So, you know, with that being said, and I hope I'm not making any assumptions here, but I'm, I'm happy. I'm really happy that I was able to, to give him that at a time in his life when I think he really may have needed it. While all this was going on, Doom was promoting himself by doing open mic nights at a little club in the city called the New Eurekan Poets Cafe. 
And it was at the first of these performances that Doom introduced another key part of his new persona, his decision to never show his face in public. First, it was just a stocking covering the top half of his face. Then he experimented with various pieces of cloth and a few different wrestling masks before finally settling on the now iconic metal faceplate, simply known as the mask. All right, it's a time in hip-hop where things, from my point of view, started going more to what things look like opposed to what things sound like. You know what I mean? Once it started getting more publicized and, you know, it started being hip-hop, started being more of a, a money-making thing, then you get these corporate ideas where you want to put what it looks like to sell what it sounds like. But we dealing with music. So what I did was I said, all right, look, I'm going to come with the angle of, you know, it don't matter what the artists look like, it's more what the artists sound like. So the mask really represents the the whole, like, to rebel against the trying to sell the product as a human being, you know what I mean? So I think it helps people focus more on what's being said. It's still entertaining. It's still like the theater, and it has the appeal of, uh, you know, something that could be considered entertaining, but that message is still there that, yo, you know, villain represents anybody. Anybody in here could wear the mask and be a villain, male, female, any race, so-called race, you know what I mean? It's about what, what, where you're coming from, from your heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what is the message? What you got to say? And finally, in 1999, after two years of hype and promotion, Doom released his debut solo album, Operation Doomsday, now considered an undisputed classic of the indie hip-hop movement. Why don't you tell him about the time we faced Doom? All right. Well, as I remember, Doom had threatened the world leaders with destruction of every major city on Earth. We see, for the first time, Doom representing himself as the Marvel Comics supervillain, Dr. Doom, both visually on the cover artwork and sonically in the skits. my well. I have plotted my revenge on you. Now I shall have it. Bid farewell to your friends. Doom hates us all. These skits, or audio collages, show up on almost every Doom album, and they follow the same basic formula every time. Chopped up spoken word samples, usually from an old cartoon or obscure sci-fi movie, reassembled to tell a loose story over an instrumental beat. Doom was inspired by the New York City radio DJs that he grew up listening to in the early 80s, and one DJ in particular. We used to listen to these old um, late-night radio shows, like, you know, same thing like how you got Bobito and them, them cats used to have the late-night radio shows. This is before, though. This is like, yeah, 81. WHBI, there was a station um, out of New Jersey, I believe. And uh, it was the Zulu Beat Show. That's what it was. You know what I mean? And they used to just spin breaks. You know what I'm saying? But they'll have voiceover pieces on top of it. Here's a little bit of Africa Islam's Zulu Beats radio show. So even at its weirdest and messiest, 
Doom's music and image were always rooted in classic hip-hop culture. His supervillain character, MF Doom, was similar to the mafia-inspired characters of Jay-Z, Nas, and Biggie. The difference being that those rappers were channeling real-life crime and violence, whereas Doom saw himself more like an author of fiction. And of course, there's also the not-so-little difference that those other rappers had signed huge contracts with major labels, which wasn't going to fly for Doom. He wasn't using any of his old connections at Elektra to get into big recording studios or get top-notch engineers. The unpolished and messy sound quality had become part of his aesthetic, part of the whole sonic universe. And his voice was also changing to match that universe. On Operation Doomsday, he sounds a bit deeper, raspier. His speech is kind of slurred. When he raps, it's almost as if he's just talking. Hey, yo, yo, y'all can't stand right here. In his right hand was your man's worst nightmare. Loud enough to burst his right eardrum close range. The game is not only dangerous, but it's most strange. I sell rhymes like dimes. The one who mostly keep cash, but brag about the broken time. Joker rhymes like the issue just having to see me trick. Classical slapstick rappers need chapstick. A lot of them sound like they're in a talent show, so I give them something to remember like the Alamo. Here's Bobito Garcia again, talking about how he helped Doom create one of the album's most celebrated songs, Rhymes Like Dimes. I remember Doom coming to my crib to, he was like, yo, I don't have the Quincy Jones record. I was like, yo, that's not a rare record. He was like, nah, but you know, I'm gonna come over to your crib and, and loop it, I know you got it. I was like, yeah, come over. So he comes over with the rolling machine under his arm, <laughs> his big coat, you know, unzipped. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just like so clear, you know. Yo, yo, boy, what's up? Yo, yo, what's up? You know, we snapping on each other, but um, yeah. So he takes the Quincy Jones record, loops it up right in my in my bedroom, and then he's like, "Yo," he had the mic with him. He sets up the mic. He's like, "Yo, like, you know, why, why don't you say something?" And I was like, "What am I gonna say?" He's like, no, just say whatever." You know, like Russell Rush. You know, yeah. You know, I said, "All right, cool." And I didn't even know what the name of the record was. I ain't, I hadn't heard his rhymes yet. I had nothing to base off of anything. There was no context, so. I did, I did the one take, it's all distorted. this moment because I can imagine the two of them just sitting on the couch together, goofing off, having fun, just being friends. And even if you didn't know the whole backstory behind it, I think you could still tell that they were channeling a playfulness that had all but disappeared from mainstream hip-hop. This time, without even rapping at all, Doom is reminding us that hip-hop is supposed to be about community about people coming together and sharing in time-honored traditions. Traditions like Russell Rush Simmons, yes, that Russell Simmons, back in 1985 just talking and goofing off over a beat for no real reason. My homeboy Rick Rubin producing the record. This is a 
Def Jam. This is the B-side, the record that's called Def Jam. And it's so deaf that we call it the Def Jam. So deaf that it's the Def Jam. Now, now, I ain't never sung before. I'm a man, y'all. Like or traditions like the iconic Yes, Yes, Y'all ad lib that MCs had been using since the 70s. Operation Doomsday was a success although it would take a couple years for people to really start seeing its effect. But Doom was just getting started both as a rapper and as a producer. And pretty soon he would release a mountain of creative, quirky, and thoughtful hip-hop music. And he would do it in ways that would be considered by most in the industry to be terrible marketing, like continuing to never show his face in public and releasing almost every album under a different name. But that's all coming up in part two, where we'll meet the producer who, despite being from the other side of the country, would turn out to be Doom's perfect fit and help him craft the greatest underground hip-hop album of all time. Today's episode is dedicated to Dingilizwe Dumale, a.k.a. DJ Subrock. Thanks for listening. But I 